You are listening to WHOA Podcast, coming to you from Gainesville, Florida. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the WHOA GNV Podcast, the podcast bringing you businesses and individuals that make you go, whoa. This morning on the show, we have Marty Schaffel, professor at UF, an entrepreneur and founder of AVI SPL. Marty, thank you so much for being here, man. It's my pleasure indeed. <laughs> I happy t- New Year to you. Yeah, Happy New Year. I can tell you that from what I can recall over a few episodes, Marty came highly recommended, yeah. right? We had Kristen Hadid on the episode and she was like, oh my gosh, you gotta get Marty on there. I even think, was it Matthew Sauchik maybe that had? I thought so, but, but just there's Kristen. definitely been a couple recommendations yeah. and so we, we fought hard to get Marty in here. And Marty, thank you so much for waking up early and joining us this morning. We really, really appreciate it. Um, how's, how's everything going, man? How, how was the holidays? Holidays, <laughs> holidays were great. Excellent. And, uh, good to be back. Uh, uh, UF and uh, doing what I love to do, which is uh, working with students to help them find their way and be more successful in their careers. Awesome. Well, we're excited to get into it. And you know what we like to do? We like to start by kind of diving back into your history a little bit. Um, we always start with with the origin stories, if you will. Some people like to take it back to their childhood. <laughs> I know we had Newell Fox on the show, and he goes like into, you know pulling golf balls out of ponds when he was 11 years old, you know? So some people take it way back and then some people just tell us, you know, from, from when they realized that they were gonna be an entrepreneur and, and you know, started a business. But take us, take us back a little bit. Tell us, tell us what got you into entrepreneurship and then, and then eventually what led you to teaching at the University of Florida. Well, I started with entrepreneurial endeavor, endeavors when I was extremely young. My mother had this idea that uh, if I, uh, followed this little blueprint to create bird feeders out of popsicle sticks, a project I learned in school, that I would be able to sell them in the neighborhood. So my first entrepreneurial venture was making bird feeders and going up and down the street, selling them to neighbors. After I successfully sold our neighbors bird feeders, uh, then came the idea of all the mailboxes in the neighborhood look kind of old and dingy. So I went up and down the street offering to paint people's mailboxes in return for generating some pocket money. And after I painted everybody's mailboxes, I then took it up to a little larger scale where since I was mowing and and edging our lawn, I went up and down the street offering to Uh, mow and edge everybody's lawns in return for a little bit of money. And that endeavor went fairly well for a few weeks until a lady across the street and about three doors down stopped me and said, do you mind doing my yard? And I said, well, your yard consists of just beautiful white gravel. I don't see any grass. And she said, well, what I want you to do is get down on your hands and knees and pick out all the little weeds coming through the gravel. I didn't have knee pads or any of the things necessary to do this, but for the right price, I was enticed to take the project, which I did and proceeded. She went inside, I got down on my hands and knees, and after I picked about three or four of those out of the rocks, I thought, there's gotta be a more efficient way to attack this. So I went back to my house, went in the garage, got a five-gallon can of kerosene, poured it all (laughs) over her beautiful white driveway, 
threw a match on it. It was the loudest explosion ever heard in my <laughs> oh neighborhood. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I had her entire white gravel up in flames. I know I burned those little suckers out, but when the fire went out, that beautiful white gravel driveway looked identical to our um, Dalmatian that we had at home. It was a very <laughs> black and white spotted driveway. And there was no hope of getting all that black uh, uh, char out of all her gravel. So she fired me. Uh, my father decided that would be the end of my lawn business, uh, rightfully so. And uh, my best friend and I decided that we would get in the newspaper route business. So how old were you in that, Evan? Uh, when I uh, burned up her driveway, yeah, yeah, or I started, yeah. burned up the driveway probably at age 14. Okay. And uh, at uh, uh, 15 uh, and 16, uh, at 15 I started a bicycle newspaper route. And then at 16 when I could drive, my best friend and I decided that instead of me doing this little 50 paper newspaper route, we would take on an 800 newspaper route. We would get, we were in both in high school, we'd get up at three in the morning and we would have to go to this destination where all the newspapers were dropped off. We had to fold a rubber band or bag, all 800 newspapers. We piled them into his mother's car and had to throw 800 newspapers every morning. And then, back then, there wasn't a collection system, so uh, for the uh, money, we had to then knock on doors every week and go around and collect the money due us for the newspapers mm. and still try and stay in high school. And we did that for six months, I think, but we couldn't keep up with the collections. Uh, people were not willing to open the door sometimes uh, when we went and asked for money. And it just became, uh, an o we, our, our eyes were uh, bigger than our capabilities in terms of being full-time high school students and trying to run an 800 newspaper route, which was one of the biggest ones for the Miami Herald at the time. Do you remember what that generated for you, like, at that age, um, from a revenue That's standpoint? a good question, but we had more pocket money than any of our friends. Yeah. Until we couldn't collect all the money, because we had to prepay the newspapers. And that was the first time I understood the term accounts receivable. Yep. <laughs> but, um, we both had a lot more pocket money than our friends, but we were also dead tired from getting up at three in the morning and uh, we went to bed earlier than any of our friends. Uh, so from that, I then took some jobs uh, working in uh, different kinds of businesses while I was in high school. And I was also a good chess player, so I would uh, hustle. I would offer 20 to one odds to anybody uh, that thought they could beat me in chess while I was in high school. And that was how I made some pocket money. And then I came to the University of Florida, and uh, I was a career student here. I was here, uh, I probably changed my major seven times. Uh, started in 1970, and uh, it was during the uh, era of the Vietnam War, so uh, anybody who did not remain in school was in a rice paddy in Vietnam. And there was a, a lot of sentiment about the war at the time, so most of us didn't understand it and were more afraid of it than anything else. It was a very different time with regards to people's perspective about uh, the military service to the country and the Vietnam War and so on. So uh, I was uh, 
the difference between getting into University of Florida when I got in with a 2.5 grade point average as opposed to the impossible requirements to get in now right uh, make a big difference so started here as a student uh, be, uh, started as a psychology major after a couple of semesters uh, changed to political science international relations I think I changed my major seven times uh, was waitlisted for the University of Florida Law School, so then I started working on a master's degree in school and college business management in the College of Education because I didn't have uh, good enough grades to get in the MBA program in the business school. Uh, brought my grades up in that program, then transferred over to the MBA program. Now I'm five and a half years invested in a um, not-too-good education. So the business school said, well, now that we've accepted you in the MBA program, you have to pick a specialty. And I said, well, I've been here a long time. I need to get out, but I need to make some money. So why don't you just tell me what pays the most when I get out, and I'll take that major. And they said, well, that wouldn't be the best criteria. I said, that's my criteria. Uh, who, where am I going to make the most money when I get my MBA? And they said, well, we have a specialty program called hospital administration. I said, okay, sign me up. Uh, when you leave here, you'll be a hospital administrator. Okay. So I'm now in the MBA program. I'm down to my last semester. And I had a real problem, as I think a lot of students do today, but I really did then, with the relevancy of what I was learning in the classroom. And I had this macroeconomics professor. Uh, he was actually, I think, a grad assistant. I don't, he was very, very young. He was not a tenured professor or a longtime professor. And we'd be in this macroeconomics class and he would put these huge equations on the board that would wrap around the whole classroom. And I'd raise my hand time after time after time and I would say, Dr. Fishkind, or I don't know if he had his doctorate at the time, but um, his name was Hank Fishkind, never forget him. And I said, are we really going to use this when we get out of here? Are we going to sit in a conference room or a boardroom and solve problems with those equations? Is that how we're going to run businesses and manage businesses? And after the 10th or 11th time I interrupted class and asked him that question, uh, he flunked me in the class. <laughs> Dean Lanzalotti called me into his office and said, uh, Son, he said, you've been here a long time. I said, yep. He said, so we're going to make you an offer. You're going to go get a job, and we're going to give you one more bachelor's degree, but you're not going to get your MBA. And I said, no, I think I'd like to finish my MBA. And he said, let me repeat this one-time offer. You're going to go get a job, leave here, and we're going to give you a second bachelor's degree and you have to tell us now. That was an offer I couldn't refuse, so I accepted his offer, left the University of Florida, took a, had no idea what I was gonna do, I was pretty despondent at the time, took a job as a manager trainee for a department store chain that's gone now called Montgomery Wards, showed up in a coat and tie and the store manager said, you look a little overdressed for your first two weeks worth of work. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, you'll be on the loading docks for the first two weeks understanding what comes in off of trucks and where it goes. 
And I said, okay. And he said, you need to proceed down there. They're waiting on you. So I go to the loading docks, and a semi full of 50-pound bags of fertilizer had just arrived. And it was all had to be unloaded by hand. Took off the jacket, took off the tie. By the time I unloaded, there was no pallet jack. This was all manually done. By the time I got all that fertilizer unloaded and I stunk to high heaven, I thought, this might not be a long-term career. But I spent the six months going from department to department, and I learned an enormous amount. I learned every part of how that store worked. I worked on the sh in the loading docks for two weeks. I handled paperwork for shipping and receiving. I worked in accounts receivable. I worked in accounts payable. I worked in human resources. I managed the, the lawn and garden department. I worked in the housewares department, uh, managing that department. Within six months, they moved me all over the store. And I learned a lot. And then I got an unsolicited offer uh, to go into outside sales. And I had a very dim perspective of sales and what I understand now and know about sales and what I think every student and everybody needs to understand about sales is very different because if there's no revenue and there's no sales, there's no commerce. But we all have a, the wrong understanding and impression of sales and that's unfortunate. And one of my goals in the classroom is to try and help students understand the, the huge value of understanding the selling process because we do it all day every day and nothing happens till we sell. But anyway, I got this unsolicited offer to go into sales and I got fired from most jobs I ever had because I had different perspectives on how things should be done and not everybody wanted to hear my perspectives. And that was no different after about a year even though I was uh, selling. Uh, the manager and I got into numerous arguments. The latest argument was he didn't like how messy my desk was, and he <laughs> threw all the stuff on my desk on the floor thinking that was a way to solve the problem. But we got into it. He fired me. I went to work for a competitor. While I was there, I spotted a product that I was totally enamored with. Called a, this is 1979 now, called a Croy lettering machine. And this is before... PC computers, uh, computerized drawing and drafting. And what it did is it produced black letters on a piece of scotch tape-like material, almost like a labeling machine, but the scotch tape-like material, when applied on an engineering drawing or on a piece of paper and run through a reprographic machine or on a copier, the tape would disappear and you would just see these beautiful black letters in a strip and there was no way to do that back then. Like I said, we didn't have uh, PCs, uh, computer technology with these huge mainframes. So it was a very, very innovative idea. Fell in love with it, uh, tried to sell it uh, and, and have the company that I had started to work for be a dealer for it. He wasn't paying his bills to the company. He was diverting money somewhere else. So I went to the company and said, I'm going to start a business just selling your product. And they said, well, do you have the business? I said, I am starting a company just to be a dealer for your products. And they said, well, how much money do you have? The opening order is $10,000. And I said, well, I have $2,000. And 
and a $400 a month apartment and a beat up paid for station wagon and a dog. And that was, that was my total net worth. So they said, well, do you have a line of credit? And I said, no. They said, can you get a letter of credit? And I said, what's that? <laughs> All the time in the UF Business School, somehow that got away from me. And I said, tell you what, I said, ship me the opening order. It was 10 machines and all these accessories. Send it to me, cash on delivery, which was something that existed then we don't have today where the UPS driver would bring the products and you hand them a check and that check will work its way back to the manufacturer where it's supposed to go. And that took about seven or eight days. So somehow I convinced them to do it. They sent the opening order. I wrote them the $10,000 check. At this point, I've pretty much violated the law because I kind of knew that I was $8,000 short. But I figured I got eight days to get those machines sold, pick up checks, and if I successfully did it at a 40% profit margin, I would make $4,000. So that was my goal. And I isolated 10 companies that I was convinced were big enough to make the decision on the spot, but small enough not to give me a purchase order or demand terms or wait to pay me, because I needed to pick up 10 checks, get them deposited, and make my check good. And I could only fit five in my car. The machines arrived, put five in my car, made some samples of the names of the companies that I identified. Eight o'clock the next morning showed up at the first company, handed the receptionist some samples of what the machine did. And I said, if you will please take this to whoever's in charge of drafting, lettering, drawing for your company. I picked engineering firms to start. If they want to know how I did it, tell them I'm here in the lobby and I'm ready to show them. And she would do that, or he would do it, mostly it was female receptionist at the time. She would take the sample strips back to the drawing area and manager would come up, say, how'd you do that? And I said, well, if you'll take me back to where all your employees are, I'll show everybody at the same time. My whole goal was if people used it, they would want it. I picked up five checks the first day. I picked up five checks the second day. I made $4,000, which in 1979 was a ton Sorry. of money. And now I had $6,000, but no more machines to sell. So I ordered another 10 machines. They came cash on delivery. I gave him a $10,000 check. Uh, still needed to make sure that I sold all the machines within a couple days so that I could make my check good. Got them all <laughs> sold. Uh, then I ordered another 10 machines. Now actually my check was good, which felt really nice. And by the way, this is not recommended to anybody. <laughs> of course and, not. Uh, <sighs> but uh, the statute of limitations, I believe, has run out. So anyway, uh, sold another. 20 machines, then I ordered another 20 machines, and I ordered 50 machines. I became one of their biggest resellers in the country, started opening offices around Florida, hiring people, and uh, after a year, I had, people were, had to buy these proprietary supply cartridges that came, that, that, that were needed to use the machine, and they had a 43% profit margin. So after a year, I had a million dollars worth of recurring revenue of people needing the accessories and supplies. 
So with that, I started branching the company out into uh, other forms of rudimentary technology that existed at the time, uh, slide projectors, movie projectors, overhead projectors. Then in the early 80s, uh, video uh, technology started to uh, evolve, so I started selling video equipment to schools and corporations. And then in 1988, somebody came in my office uh, by then, I was out of my apartment and actually into a real office warehouse space. And somebody came in my office with a early Apple uh, PC and this glass picture frame, this plastic picture frame that had a piece of glass in the middle. It just it was a square frame, a piece of translucent glass and a cable hanging out of it. I said, what's that? He said, if you'll go find one of those old-time overhead projectors, I want to show you something. So I went and got it. An overhead projector is essentially a light box. It projects light. So we took this picture frame, put it on top of the overhead projector, plugged the cable into the, I think it must have been an 8-bit Apple PC, one of the early, earliest PCs, turned everything on, plugged it in, and there was text on the glass and the light went through the glass and projected black and white text up on the screen. And I said, wow, that's the way the world's gonna communicate in the future. This was the first liquid crystal material that had ever been used for display technology. So I committed all our resources to become the world's leading uh, distributor, reseller, and integrator of display technology. And the company, AVI SPL, I started as AVI, we, we became the largest in the world, merged the second largest in the world in, which was SPL. And they're at about 850 million in revenue due to about a billion dollars in the next year or so. Wow. <laughs> so it was a pretty good entrepreneurial run, if I must say so myself. One that seems like really relied on your gut instinct. I mean, was there a lot of analysis on data of these trends? You know, like, when you're when you're saying, like, you just saw this material, this tape that was, you know, putting I hate text. to interrupt you and start laughing, but the answer's no. Yeah, I mean, like, I just, like, I hear that, and then I hear, like, oh, you, like, you see something, you see this projector, and it's, like, I committed all of our resources to it, you know, it's totally instinctual. Yeah. There is absolutely no research or data. Is because really, if you, if you just dial everything back to its basic core, commerce and business and sales is all about meeting your need of solving or solving a problem. Right. And to me, the idea of being able to take output from this new technology called a portable computer and having that output displayed up on a screen, that was mind-numbing to me. It was so transformational. You just knew. It's the same way that I looked at that Croy lettering machine and said, this is a game changer. This solves a problem. This meets a need. People are gonna want this if they see it. They're gonna use it. And that's how I reinvented my company probably six times over the period of time that I built it and ran it, which was 
when did I see that need or opportunity to reinvent the company? And also, when did I see that need and requirement to reinvent myself as a leader and CEO? Well, so take me to that a little bit. I mean, you didn't really know anything about running a company. Right. Nothing. And that first year, you the said- The University of Florida trained all of us to leave here and be the CEO of Ford or General Motors, and none of us got that job when we left. Hey, like, <laughs> I felt like that leaving in 2004. Yeah. So I don't I don't know if it's still like that, but that, that's the way I felt in 2004. And I, like, and I tell everybody that I cherish my, my relationship with the University of Florida, my education from the University of Florida, but I very much felt like you go to school, you get a job, you work for somebody else. And my, my mission in coming back and j joining the faculty at University of Florida is to help transition what I would call the relevance of what we're teaching to help people, people be successful in the transformation, the transforming work environment. And uh, that to me is a big need. So I start every one of my classes by telling the story of how raising my hand and asking about the relevance of what I was learning didn't go well with my instructor. But I have a rule in my class, at any time you can raise your hand, interrupt me, and ask me a simple question. Am I really going to use that when I leave here? And I have to stop and answer the question. And if I can't satisfactorily answer it, I expect to be held accountable by my students. I never had that opportunity when I was a student, but I believe it's important to make sure that I can find relevance in what I do in the classroom. Now, that may not necessarily work for everything taught on campus, and I may not necessarily win the hearts and minds of everybody else who's a, on the faculty at University of Florida, sure. but this is my personal drive and ambition. Yeah, it's definitely a step in the right direction. How many students have uh, done that to you? <laughs> Not often because yeah. I try and be extremely cognizant about, sure. I have three rules when I start every class. Uh, or I, I list three goals. Goal number one, I want this to be the best class that you took in your career at the University of Florida. The second rule that I have is I want this course that I'm teaching to be the course I would have dreamed of teaching when I was a student here, but it wasn't offered. And my third goal is that sometime within the first 10 years after you graduated the University of Florida, each and every one of you will be able to send me an email and tell me what difference this course had in your life or career. That's awesome. And the very last thing I say to the class on the very last day is I restate those three things and say, I hope you can walk out of here with this having been the best class you took when you were a student here, and that it's the class that I dreamed that I could have taken had I been a student here, and number three, that I hope I hear from you over the next 10 years and you tell me what difference this made. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, that's incredible. What, so what's the official like title of the class that you teach? Well, I have a bit of a following of students, so it burdens me to continue to reinvent my class every semester. Okay. So one class I created was called Entrepreneurial Postmortem, the reasons for <laughs> failure and success in entrepreneurial endeavors. Okay. And that's more of a case studies approach to uh, business, entrepreneurial endeavors and leaders and why they succeed and fail. 
Another class I created was entrepreneurial leadership. Uh, another one I co-taught with Dr. Brian Ray was entrepreneurial courage. and uh, Another one around uh, uh, ethical leadership. And I'm developing a class that's oversubscribed two to one uh, for this spring. Uh, entrepreneurship and leadership as found in um, cinematic works. And this past semester I used uh, the Jim Collins book, Good to Great, is a textbook, but we're going to derive more content uh, this spring from work done in cinema. And actually, it wasn't my idea. I was in um, Dean Kraft's office, Dean Warren School of Business, and told him, I'm not sure what I should teach next. I keep getting a lot of students that want to follow me. He said, well, here's a class I taught one time. Why don't you teach this? And he described this class about using content from cinema as opposed to just textbooks. And I said, Dean Kraft, you're an academic. I'm not an academic. I said, I can't imagine you're telling me to use cinema in the classroom as opposed to academic textbooks. This is the last discussion I ever <laughs> expected to have. He said, no, it was a great class. I love teaching it. You'd be good at it. Go for it. <laughs> so that's where it came about. That's awesome. So I have two sensational uh, teaching assistants lined up uh, for uh, the spring, and we uh, had dinner at Manuals last night while we planned out the syllabus. How do you uh, how do you help shape more of what's happening? Like I realize you're doing it in your class, but I mean I got to think that there's a lot of students who are still questioning that relevance of you know being. You know, is is this is this relevant to what I'm doing, or, or to what I I want to do once once I get out of here, and I don't know. I guess I hear you. Let me yeah yeah. Let me, let me see if the answer I'm going to give you is where you're at because okay. I think I hear you. Um, I teach a two hour class, but I teach an eight to ten hour experience a week. Now, what does that mean? If my class runs, this past semester it ran two to four on Mondays, next semester it'll run probably four to six. And then afterwards I host a dinner for all the students. And I pay for it and we sit around and talk until about, if we start dinner at seven, we're usually talking and eating in a round table format until about 9.30. Then anybody who wants to follow me after that we have cigars and uh, beverages until 12.30 or 1 in the morning. Why? The whole purpose is to create a bond and a network and an exchange of ideas well past what we covered in class. So the, to me, if you're taking my class, the time in the classroom is a small part of the overall experience that I'm trying to create. Sure. And then on Tuesdays, I take my teaching assistants and one invited student and we'll have dinner at manuals and it's kind of a planning meeting and then also just a feedback loop from one of the students about what they got out of the class that particular week the day before and then after that we'll go over to the Havana Cigar Lounge and then we'll have cigars until they close at midnight <laughs> and invite other people from the community and other classes to come join us so I may have two hours in the classroom but for those interested students, I probably have 15 hours of interaction a week. And then 
The other thing I do is I bring enormously successful and interesting people that I know from Tampa and different places who have great stories to tell and share, and they come up for this whole experience. So they'll come for the classroom, then they'll come for the dinner, then they'll come for uh, the bonfire and hanging out at night until 12 or 1 in the morning in a, around, uh, around the fire circle. Different students will host a bonfire in the back of their house. And we spend time talking until the last person is done. So it's the exchange of ideas, the creation of a tight bond of friendship and um, uh, fellow students that is going to last way past uh, their time at University of Florida. And that's something that didn't exist when I was a student. I'm not sure where else it's, it exists besides what I'm doing, but I have a rule. I don't let the university pay me to come up here and teach. I do this because I want to. So I drive from Tampa every week, drive a couple hours up, stay here a couple days, and drive back and do it every week. And I do it because I want to. So I don't let the university pay me. I try and divert the money that would come to me to teaching assistance and pay for the costs of guests and so on. And my goal is to create an experience, a learning experience. And the guests that I bring in, they walk away exhilarated. And when I drive up here, it feels like a drudgery to drive to Gainesville, but I'm so energized that I leave on a great high and the ride home feels like five minutes. So it's just, for me, it's a great experience. And the last thing I would say to you is, I believe I built my company not because I was chasing money, because that never works in building an endeavor. So anybody that's focused on the money is not going to be successful. You have to be focused on what your mission and vision and what you set out to do is, and the money will follow. So my goal was if I can ensure that my employees are going to be successful, then I'm going to be successful. So I started selling products and services to customers, but once I started hiring employees, the first time I reinvented myself was when I had to say, okay, I'm still selling, but I'm selling a different commodity now. Now that I have employees, I'm selling a vision of opportunity and success to my employees. So that was my first reinvention. When I retired and sold my shares in the company and eventually left the board, I had a void, a big void in my life. I had spent all these years helping people be successful and now I had this void. By coming to the University of Florida and working with students every week and helping them find their pathway to success and navigate the trials, tribulations, agony, and everything else they face in where they're at at this point in their life, I filled that void, and it's good for them, and it's rewarding for me. Yeah, it's gotta be super rewarding, especially like when they go, when they leave, and they do, they do send you that email 10 years, you know, five, 10 years down the road. And I get them. Yeah, I mean, what's been one of the coolest stories that, you know, it's come from one of those emails. When I get a story and somebody says, I just want to let you know that I faced a really tough situation. And while I was working through it, I thought back about that story you told in class where you had faced 
great adversity in a situation in your business and how you confronted the brutal facts and overcame the adversity, it helped me get my mind straight to attack it and get through it. And I want to let you know, here's what happened and here's how I got through it. And I don't know that I could have done it if I hadn't have had that experience in your class. And how are you teaching perseverance and, and getting through failures? I mean, I feel like, is it just learning from, just observing, analyzing other people's stories? Well, then, I've been asked so many times, can you really teach entrepreneurship? Yeah, right. And my feeling is I can't teach somebody passion. I can't teach somebody integrity. I can't teach somebody you know, perseverance, focus, or any of the other qualities that make a successful leader or entrepreneur. I can't teach you perseverance or passion, but I can help you understand and see where people who have had that and applied it in an appropriate way to meet needs and solve problems and impassion other people and lead them creates great success and opportunity. And I can do that through example, case study, personal story, uh, uh, guests that I bring here who have done it and share their stories. That's how I can exemplify what the, where the uh, successes have been. I can't get somebody to necessarily do it. I'm creating the opportunity for the light bulb to go off, but they're responsible for the light bulb. Right. It's kind of like, <laughs> makes me think of when somebody was questioned, somebody had asked me after I had left the University of Florida and had started my business and had already been doing it for several years, they said, so are you gonna go back and get your master's in entrepreneurship? <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I've got my master's in entrepreneurship. I'm doing it every single day. I was like, I don't know if you can teach entrepreneurship. I think in order, you gotta like, go start a business to really, you know, yeah. understand it. Um, was kind of what I was, but you know, I agree with you in terms of like, you know, the understanding and, but like in order to teach it, you know, it's like, go, go do, go, go start a business, go, go fail, go have the little, you know, that, that's how you ultimately persevere and succeed. Yeah. We don't learn anything from success. We learn from mistakes and failure. Absolutely. I left here ill-equipped to start and run a business and I had no mentors. Fortunately, I was able to do something that generated revenue quickly. And if I made mistakes, I was able to recover from them and learn from them. I had no concept of the word, or I couldn't even spell the word, never heard the word entrepreneurship, <laughs> never even heard the word. And I had no concept of what the elements of leadership were or small business, the things you have to do in a small business. So for instance, one of my tennis buddies was a divorce attorney and he did my incorporation. Now, needless to say, that was all done wrong. But I got it done for free. And another one of my tennis buddies had just gotten his four-year degree in accounting from University of South Florida, so he proceeded to set up all my books. Needless to say, that wasn't done. So, <laughs> I've been there too. I've been there too. <laughs> so I, I couldn't have done things more wrong but learn from them and eventually by all the mistakes I made, getting my face bloodied and my brains beat in, that's how I learned. Can you walk me through that first year a little bit? So like when you, cause you said, if I, if I wrote this down right, 
you had achieved a million dollars in recurring revenue. Was that that was by the end of the first year? Yeah. Okay. I mean, so in the first year, um, you know, when it started when it started to take off and get traction, I mean, how many employees did you have in that in that first year? Like when did you when did you make the first hire? When did I mean and and how you know as that developed? I guess I'm just really interested in that part of the story because well, I mean, then you go from being a a solo entrepreneur to being a business leader of other individuals. So I I'd never hired anybody under my own employ. I mean I helped in my previous jobs, but it's really different when you're hiring somebody yourself as your employee. So my first employee, I was in, I was working out of this two bedroom apartment and one bedroom was where I lived and everything was in this apartment. All the boxes, all the shipping stuff, uh, all the accounting stuff, the repair for everything was in the kitchen. Uh, the shipping department was the spare bathroom. And you open up a shower curtain, all these boxes fall. And you just <laughs> open up the bassinet looking for toilet paper and the shipping labels and packing tape. And, I love it. Uh, so anyway, uh, I knew that I needed to hire people to do things that hopefully they would do better than me so that I could do what I did well, which at this point was generating revenue and selling. So I was down at the branch bank. I'm about four months into this. And uh, I said to the lady at the branch, I said, I really need somebody to type up invoices and sales orders and do some basic bookkeeping. I said, do you know anybody? And she said, oh, I have this friend. She's such a lovely woman. Her name is Mildred Fish. She, you really have to hire her. I said, can she type? Oh, she can type great. I said, I have a lot of typing. I said, now keep in mind, in 1979, you know, I had my manual typewriter that was what I survived with as a student that went all the way back to high school that once belonged to my mother, I think. I mean, this is 70-year-old technology or whatever. So uh, I had that on the dining room table. I brought Mildred in. I said, Mildred, could you type? She said, oh, yeah. You type fast? Oh, yeah. Great. You're hired. Here's a stack of invoices I need, or sales orders, I need to convert them into invoices. So she's there, and I go into the spare bedroom, which is now the sales office, which is a tiny little room with a desk in it. And I'm waiting to hear the click, 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 click of the typewriter. And then I heard click, and then I heard click, click, <laughs> and then I heard click. You're like, oh no. This isn't good. <laughs> so I stick my head out around the door, and there's Mildred with her two fingers going up and down, searching the keyboard for the next letter. And uh, I would say she was probably typing at about three words a minute, with a mistake in each word, probably. And uh, I said, oh, my God. Mildred, have you ever had a typing course? Well, no, but I had planned on it. Okay. Being the softy that I was, I then sent her to a typing class. <laughs> that didn't work either. <laughs> didn't help. Didn't help. Uh, darn. <laughs> that was my that was my first hire and my first termination. <laughs> uh, and then, like, um, what was the most amount of people that you ended up managing? Well, uh, I think I exited around two thousand employees. Dang. And there's probably 2,500 right now. 
And uh, as I said, the real challenge in an enterprise is the business has to reinvent itself and the leader has to reinvent itself and key people have to reinvent themselves because every time you change in size and scope and vision and strategy and direction, uh, the leadership and the people have to transform as well. So that's the biggest challenge, I think, is this whole process and concept of reinventing a business to keep it relevant and keep it ahead and making sure that you've reinvented everybody. I had to reinvent my salespeople. When technology changed, I had to convince my salespeople that you have to get away from this tried and true because there's not much time left on that path. We now have to get down this path. And yeah, it's a change and it's different. But you're either going to be out front and successful or you're going to be behind and you're going to be broke. Do you think you have to do, like, it's more so now, right, because of technology with how, fa how rapidly things change? I had or somebody ask me, do you miss running a company? And I said, no. I, and they said, why? Didn't you love it? I said, oh, of course I loved it. But when I started the company, if I had a piece of paper in my hand and I wanted somebody else to have the content of that paper and they were in another city, the best I could hope is that the content on that piece of paper would get to them in a day or two. And then after they looked at it and maybe signed it, the best they could hope is it would get back to me in another day or two. That's how fast things moved. How's that compare? Because there was no fax machines, no internet, no electronic movement of anything. Everything was paper and manual. So think about the time we had to develop an idea and evolve a company. Right. You don't have that time right now. I, I don't know that I could be successful or effective in today's speed. If I were 20 or 21 or 22, I could. Do you think it's a huge disadvantage and because when I hear you say that, my mind goes back to, you know, because the because the pressure you're under to get your idea off the ground quickly, you know, you always hear the first to market, first to market, you know, and so you have all these business men and women out there trying to raise a bunch of money. It's like oh, I got I got to raise them. I got because if I don't get it out into market fast enough, somebody's going to steal my idea. So they go out and they raise a bunch of money versus taking more of a bootstrap method and, and really and really going out and. Working, working a deal with, with a, a supplier saying like, I got $2,000, I got a car, I got a dog. <laughs> you know, doing that and then starting with that and letting that build and grow into something. There's just so much pressure now because of- Did you go raise a lot of money when you started the scooter business? No, I didn't. Neither did I. Okay. And uh, I sold, when I sold the company, I rewarded my employees really well, but I owned 100% of the stock. And you know, when I finally sold the company, or 20% of the company, the dark clouds of 2008 were rapidly upon us. And one of my financial buddies said, you got a deal on the table. If you don't take that deal, you, you may never survive or appreciate where you're at again because of what's on the horizon. He had a good understanding of what was coming better than I did. So when somebody was willing to cross the nine-digit line of uh, valuation for 80% of the company, 
they had my attention. But the thing, and, and I had a student say to me one time, what was the greatest day in your career, the day that they wired that nine digits worth of money into your bank account? And I said, that was a pretty good day. <laughs> uh, may, may have been one of my best, but I'm gonna call it my second best, because the best day of my career was the next morning when I was at my desk at eight in the morning. Had a nice glass of scotch the night before, I will say that. But um, uh, the next morning I was at my desk, I called employees in who had helped me get to where I got to along the way. And I'd taken $10 million, carved it up into checks, handed each one a check, hugged them, thanked them for where we'd gotten to at that point, and my hope that we will continue to go to another level together. Because awesome. I was still involved, but um, you know, I had sold 80% uh, of the company to Silver Lake uh, Technologies, a huge technology private equity firm. What's it like now? Like when you see something that you had started that was like this, and then to what you know you just told it is what it's virtually a billion dollar company at this point. I mean that's cr that's crazy to even think about. I don't even know if I can like fathom like the idea of a company that I started now being a billion dollar. You know what I mean? It's um, it's really rewarding. It's cool. It's 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 really rewarding to. Uh, when I see the kinds of things the company's doing and I see the people I hired as entry-level employees doing amazing things. Yeah, that's so cool. And having great careers. Um, you know, I created several thousand jobs. I transformed people's lives. Uh, I helped people be successful. I made a difference in the businesses that we did business with. Uh, and you're still doing so. And that's, I mean, that's your purpose. Building people is out. I mean, from like everything that I've heard today, I'm like, man, this is this it's is about the purpose. People. It's about building these. It's people. about people. Uh, it's all about identifying great talent and working with them to be successful. I I, I teach a concept. Uh, well, let me rephrase it this way. My last three goals where I wanted the company to be a billion dollars, but it didn't hit a billion dollars while I owned it, so I failed. It'll be there, but I won't own the company when it gets there. Close, but I won't own the company when it gets there, so I consider that a failure. Hmm. Second one was I wanted to organically build. I'll take your failure any day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> just, say, just say that right now, I'll take your failure any day of the week. All right, sorry. So my second goal, was I wanted to organically build the world's largest um, audiovisual video and display technology company in our industry with a national and international footprint. I wanted to be the first and the biggest. And I did that. And that was a goal that I set out to achieve and I achieved it. And the third one is a concept I coined and I still teach it today. It's called management nirvana. I wanted to get to a point where nobody was allowed to report to me that needed to be managed. I wanted to be able to sit around a table and I wanted to be able to talk about collaboratively the vision and direction of where we're going, what needs to be done, know who owns it, 
And when we all got up, I didn't have to worry about anybody not doing what they were responsible or uh, said they were going to do. And if I did, then they had to report to somebody else or leave the company. You couldn't report to me if I needed to manage him. It took me 25 years to get there. But that was one of my career goals because it's the most liberating experience for a manager or leader to not have to manage but to collaborate. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Part of the, I want to cycle back to some of those classes you, you previously taught because before the, the podcast, we talked about some of the, the ways you're kind of moving or thinking of moving into the future by, um, you know, maybe writing a book, putting some podcasts together, maybe even creating, I'm sure maybe some online classes where you can share your message with, with everyone. Um, Cause I think everyone would love to take your class. Um, I would like to take your class. Yeah. <laughs> Colin, Colin Can I come I take in. your class? Yeah. I would like seriously show up. I want to take James. I want to take James Bates's class and and your class. That'd be a nice That's semester, a, dude. But uh, the one they all piqued my interest. But the entrepreneurship courage class. You know, you you talk about constantly reinventing yourself, but it's not just in business. Because as I kind of did some research on you, you reinvent yourself across your entire life scope. Yeah. Um, you know, you're quite the philanthropist. You know, you became a amateur optometrist along with your daughter. <laughs> Talk about some of these other things that you've done away from the business side that has helped you grow um, and learn, you know, maybe different ways to work with people or manage people because you're doing it in so many different ways. Um, those are really fantastic experience to hike into the mountains and Dominican Republic with a group of people, my daughter included, uh, with a donkey carrying a few thousand pairs of eyeglasses and us being trained as what I would call, as you phrased, the amateur optometrist where we had rudimentary um, eye test charts and different lenses and we provided eyeglasses for people to be able to see and read or see things that are small, even if they couldn't read, many of them, most of them couldn't read. Uh, but the look on their face when they could see clearly again, they cried and they hugged us, and you, you knew you changed their life. And that was, that's an amazing experience. And again, it was an amazing experience just that day after I sold the first 80% of the company for people to come in my office and for me to hand them a check and thank them and for them to give me a hug and tell me you know, what impact their experience in the company to date had on their life and their family and where they are. And um, same with students. When I walk into a classroom, the number of students come up and give me a welcome hug or give me a hug when they leave the classroom. And I know that I've made a great connection. And that those connections, I think, is what is the fuel that causes my engine to run. When I can see that I can make a difference in somebody's life, and I tell my students, I said, I told you what the greatest day in my career was that next morning. I said, the greatest goal you can set for yourself, and I hope in my lifetime I hear about it, is when you did the same thing. When you had a chance to build something 
and then you had a chance to thank people who helped you get there. And don't ever forget to thank them because you didn't get there by yourself. And you, and I know there's a story of a very wealthy, successful guy in Tampa. I'm not going to mention his name. He sold his company for an obscene amount of money, and he didn't share a penny with anybody uh, except you know whatever shares may have been uh, given out in a public format if, if it was public. But I, I remember so many people saying the amount of money that the guy made was obscene and he didn't say thank you to a single person. And I just, I, I, it's just the antithesis of what I believe in. And it's, it, along the way you have to continue. If you, if you want people to be impassioned in an organization, you have to make sure that they feel significant, that they feel appreciated, recognized, and important. That's what people want. And if you foster those things, you will get numerous people out of one person. But when you take that away or you don't do that, you got to hire numerous people to get the job done of one person. Right. Because you have a body, but you don't have passion. Dude, that, that, all that's the part that gets me super excited. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because. I mean, I've even had discussions with my wife. I'm like, I mean, I could, I, I feel like I could be a, a solopreneur, <laughs> you know what I mean, pretty easily. I think I could go out and make enough money, just me, to to live happily and, you know, provide for my family. But I just, I feel this this calling to to build great teams, you know what I mean? Even with like the new media, com, com, the new media company, excuse me, I'm super excited to, to get out and like, and pull people together to accomplish something that is just way bigger than ourselves. And, and that, that, inspires, that inspires me. It's just the, the journey itself, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like sure, sure there's like a vision and a mission that we're trying to accomplish, but the journey of getting there and doing it with, with people, like that's what I said at our, at our holiday party, right? I was like, Guys, I have the biggest privilege of anybody because I'm the one who gets to put the teams together. I'm the one that gets to decide who, you know, who comes to help us achieve this. And I'm just, I don't know, I'm super appreciative of, of both of our teams. So Colin, let's have a little fun here. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna ask you a question. Sure. What's, What's your definition? It's going, it's going the other way around now. <laughs> well, I'll come back at you. I like it, I like what, it. Uh, would you define for me the difference between a manager and a leader? I, I think a manager, you know, tells people what to do. It's like these these are the tasks that we need to get done. Whereas a leader inspires action. A leader, you know, I, I think I think the best definition of leadership that I ever heard was a leader gets other people to do what they what they want them to do because they want to do it. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm, I'd say, I'm gonna tell you right now, I think you're a natural because you're very close to um, my definition. I, I'll tell you how close we are. The way I teach it and the way I always believed it, and I wrote it on little pieces of paper and handed it to my managers when I thought they needed it, was your definition to me uh, on a manager is spot on. It's a manager's telling people what they need to do. My definition of a leader is a leader gets people to do what they want them to do but feel good about it yeah 
And it's the feel good about it that distinguishes a manager from a, a leader from a manager. And I, I think that it's just really important to understand how to empower people. I teach uh, this concept of the cancer of fear in an organization. Fear is the worst cancer you can have in an organization. And then I spend hours in the classroom talking about where fear comes from. To me, fear comes from managers or leaders who lack self-esteem and self-confidence and use intimidation, fear, and bullying as a way to tell people to do things, which paralyzes an organization. An organization needs people to make decisions. And if you don't cause people to know and feel comfortable that they can make a decision to the best of their ability without retribution or retaliation if it doesn't go well, you have a paralyzed organization. It's not dynamic. A dynamic organization is made up of people who are willing to make a decision. And I would tell my employees, listen, I need you to make decisions. You will never be fired for any decision you ever make, no matter how bad the consequences, as long as it's couched in one of three things. The decision you made, you believe was right for the company, the customer, or fellow employees. If it's couched in those three things, you will not be terminated, no matter how bad the outcome. However, if you made the decision based on greed, ego, self-aggrandizement, or anything else, you're toast. Yeah, I mean, the, that's essentially your values. I mean, for us, like we have, we have 12 core values that, that we came up with as a team. And, and they still, you know, they have a tendency to, to come and ask, you know, management for a decision, the, our leaders on a decision. We actually have a thing on the door that says, before you come in here, that's like that little note right there, you see it? Says, you know, it says if you're coming in here with a problem, then have three solutions in mind. You know what I mean? It's like, before you even present it to us, we wanna know really how, how you, you said think. that, because that's 100% what my attitude was. But let me explore it with you a little bit. Well, and the one thing I was gonna say real quick was that the one thing I tell my team members is exactly that. It's like, hey, if, you, if one of us is not here and, and you're not sure what to do, run it through those 12 core values. And as long as it aligns with those core values, make the decision. And as long as you make the decision based on those core values, you will not lose your job. It might not necessarily be the decision I would have made, but you're still doing it based on our core, the core values of the company, so you can't make the wrong decision. And, and, and you're simply empower, you know, you're empowering them. You're empowering them to make those decisions, and that's ultimately how I think we're gonna grow and scale. So I did the same thing. You couldn't come in to my office with a problem without three solutions. <laughs> and then what'd you do from there? Well, when they come in? Yeah, so they oh, come well, in. You start, ask, you start asking questions. Instead mm -hmm. of giving, giving them the answer that they're seeking, you know, we, start, we start asking questions in order to prompt you know, what, what, they, what they think should be done. And then when they say, well, I think, I think this is what we should do, it'd be like, great. <laughs> now, what if, you knew that, what, what, if, what, what if they gave you three solutions and you knew one was really good, one was okay, and one was really bad, but they were leading to the one that's really bad? That's a, yeah, that's a good question. I don't even know if that's really happened before. I feel like I normally let them, I, I feel like I, as long as I know that it's not going to be the, 
the really like a really really wrong de- decision i feel like i normally let them run with the one that they want because uh you know again kind of going back to your early lessons and and failure it's like it's I, I want them i want them to learn from the experience and if i think they're going to make if for some reason the deci- the the solution that they're presenting, I feel, doesn't align with the core values or isn't gonna be best for the customer, that kind of thing, then I'll just look at it as a coaching opportunity and try to coach them in the right direction. But um, I think So that was my philosophy. Yeah. And I was proud of that philosophy, as I know you are. And one day I was visiting this huge defense contractor up in St. Louis. And I was, you know, feeling pretty good about all my management philosophies and accomplishments and you know, this wasn't long before I sold the company, so I was you know, feeling pretty pretty proud and good and what I'd accomplished. And I'm talking to this guy that has his business, and he's senior vice president. He wasn't he wasn't the entrepreneur, but clearly, you know, second in, or third in command. And I start spouting off about my belief in you know somebody has a problem or an issue that you know they walk in and. You know, tell me what the three are and how I try and coach or guide them to the optimal decision, but still make sure they own it. And the guy stops me and he says, see out the window in my office here? You see that guy over there? You've met him before, right? And I said, yeah, Joe, man. Yeah, I, I've met Joe. He said, do you think he's good? I said, man, I'd love that. I wish he were on my team. He's one of the best. He's fantastic. I said, let me tell you something. Joe walked in my office one day doing the same thing. He had a problem, brought in three solutions. And he wanted to go with one that I knew was god-awful. And I let him do it. And you know what? He failed. He failed miserably. But man, did he become a good manager as a result of it. Because I let him fail. Yeah. Well, that's how how you learn. (laughs) I said, wow. I said, I wasn't willing to, to absorb the costs of failure. And he said, you need to appreciate the rewards and benefits that can come when people fail and make mistakes because that's the only way they're going to learn. And I walked away going, man, this guy just humbled the heck out of me. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I love that's it. Cool. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, we got to start wrapping up soon. I, yeah, hear, I hear their door next door rolling up. <laughs> our beat, our uh, beatboxing uh, or our boxing gym friends are going to start pumping some music soon. Um, one thing I wanted to ask is, would you do, um, would you bring your employees at your businesses together in the same fashion as you do now um, teaching at UF? Would you guys do things out of the office? And Yeah, I'll tell you something funny about that. I created, uh, with the help of a very, very key employee, a concept where we brought all the employees in from around the country and created an educational and social situation so everybody knew that what they were a part of. Yeah. And I had this one little tradition. Um, every night after dinner and all other activities, I would, co- I would go to the event with hundreds or even thousands of hand-rolled cigars, and I would tell everybody who wants to sit with me until the last person gets up, one or two in the morning, I will cut and light a cigar for you and we will sit around as big a circle as people want to and we will have a cigar together and I will ask you questions and you'll ask me questions but it was my chance to really understand what people thought and felt and to gain intel and data and for them to understand 
what they wanted to know that because you get these little conspiracy theories that pop up in companies because people don't have good information. So it was the best way for me to have the closest connection, uh, stamp out conspiracy theories or other yeah. bad information, and uh, learn and make sure that employees knew that I wanted to be connected to what they thought and felt. Well, it's an empathetic style of leadership. You're learning their personalities and how to, you know, I see you play a lot of different sports and you've done other things. Um, I played golf for UF and I coach basketball and run a golf academy and learning each individual's tendencies and how they need to be coached in, you know, a direct fashion or indirect or, you know, what's really going on in their lives matters so much more um, than I think a lot of people realize. And once they, they sit down with people and share moments outside the office or outside, you know, whatever scope you're in, it makes everything a lot easier and smoother. And, you know, you figured that out from, from day one, which is pretty cool. Um, uh, may not maybe been, not day one. But again. But um, early on, if you help others be successful, you know, you're gonna be more successful Person, personally and together. So to wrap it all up, my first of seven majors was psychology. I ended up finding out that at the end of the day, I was a psychologist yeah. uh, as a CEO. Mm. And that's essentially what I did. And I had students say to me, what was the best course you ever took when you were a student at the University of Florida? For all those years you were here. And I said, you know, the best course I took wasn't on campus. I volunteered at the Suicide Crisis Center and for four months, I had to go through an intense training in a course called Active Listening. And it's the art of being able to ask questions in a way where it gets people to open up and talk. I said, that is the most valuable course I ever took in my life. I would encourage you to continue to push those students to, con to get off campus and come integrate with organizations like ours. I mean, there's like, I, I still feel like sometimes that the University of Florida, as much as I love it, is, has a little bubble over there and students don't realize that by crossing University Avenue and 13th Street and or, you know, just getting outside of that square, that there's just a lot of opportunity for them to, to experience things like the, that crisis center or just working with an organization like ours and, and getting that firsthand experience before they before they graduate. I mean, it's, it's incredible. We, we've, we have, I'm, I am stoked because Joanna, she just, she started here as an intern at, at you know, non-paid intern here at New Scooters for Less, and then went into a marketing assistant role here for New Scooters for Less. I then started a marketing agency. She shifts over there and now she's graduating and is staying on full time as one of the leaders in this new marketing agency that I developed. And it's just, it's cool to see somebody progress like that. And for me to have the opportunity to hire an incredibly talented person from the University of Florida to stay right here, um, that, you know, it's, yeah, that's, that, awesome. that's inspiring to me. So encourage those students to come and to, you know, mingle with us. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, have one, I have one final question and, and it's really related to the students. Um, you know, you say you changed your path seven seven different times during your course career, uh, during your course of your college career. Um, I still think that there's a lot of students that are in the same place. Like they're still they have no idea what they want to do, still trying to figure it out. Like, what's the best piece of advice that you can give to a college student that's that's trying to 
trying to figure out what they want to do with the rest of their lives. You have no idea how much time I spend with students going through that process. And I think the technique that works the best is to sit down and say, okay, let's make a list of the things that you absolutely detest, hate to do, or are fearful of doing on any given day. Let's make a list of those things. And let's make a list of what are those things that really excite you that, y- if, that you do or wish you could do every day. And if you un- un- understand the things that, the kinds of things you like to do that excite you or that impassion you, and you stare at that nucleus, then you find the commonality between those things and where those things exist in some kind of a field or career or job but you have to find your way to being able to do what you enjoy doing every day or you will be miserable and probably an alcoholic (laughs) (laughs) probably an alcoholic oh man that's a i mean i didn't just having this conversation and just, you know, I start reflecting and I'm just like, man, I'm super, super grateful for where I'm at. The opportunity to even wake up, or, or like, I'm not a morning person, <laughs> but the opportunity to wake up early, get here before, you know, the shop opens and, and, and record a podcast at eight o'clock in the morning. Like, I was pumped. Well, I gotta you tell know? you something. Like, I was I pumped. was with students last night at Havana Lounge uh, navigating some really tough issues that uh, a bunch of them had. So we were there until closing time, and I was saying to myself, man, this thing I'm gonna do tomorrow better be good, because <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna get to bed until one, and I'm gonna yeah. have to get up early, so <laughs> this better be good. And I gotta tell you, this has been fun, and I appreciate awesome. you having me. Thank you so much for being here. Man, like, I, I feel just honored, and like, the, it was such an interesting conversation. Like, for, uh, you know, I do know a lot of people in Gainesville, and we've interviewed a lot of, a lot of those individuals that I know, and then, like, I mean, we hadn't met each other until this morning, and it has been just, you know, wow. It's been whoa. <laughs> it's, been, it's been whoa. So, and that's exactly what we want. That's the whole point of the podcast, so I can't thank you enough for being here. Um, you know, if people would like to reach out to you, is that something that you're okay with? Like, Yeah, I'm re, uh, redoing my website right now, but my okay. website is marty at martinshaffle.com. So M- uh, that's a- your email? M-A-R-T-Y. Okay. And the website is martinshaffle.com, M-A-R-T-I-N-S-C-H-A-F-F, like in Frank, E-L.com, M-A-R-T-I-N, S C H A F F E L dot com. And my uh, hope is that uh, uh, by the time you look at it, we will have uh, rebuilt it. I have some students working on it, and I'm excited about a, a rebuild of the website. Awesome. Man, thank you again so much for being here. My pleasure. You guys, happy, happy New Year to everybody. Yeah, happy, New Year. happy New Year. And Gainesville. World, this is the WHOA GNV podcast, the podcast bringing you individuals and businesses, or I should, I usually go businesses and individuals <laughs> that make you go, whoa. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye.